your work as a psychotherapist working in New York. The image we have of uh, New York is um, intense, frequently um, stressful, and much in the way of uh, um, aggression and so forth. So I would like you to tell me a little bit about the work that you do in New York and what kind of clients you notice yourself actually working with. And what does your work consist of in that regard? The, uh, the words uh, stressful and aggressive, mm. they really don't describe it. It's, no. it's, desperate. it's, it's desperate. It's one of the coldest. The, these, the people who come to me come in mostly desperate for warmth. The, mm. the psychological adjustment is a part of it, but mm. basically when they come in, the first thing that they really need is to is to feel that they're in the presence of somebody who's really welcomed them. Mm. And then the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to be terribly suspicious of it. Yes. Especially right. when they walk in and they see that there's no furniture in the place. There's rugs. There's cushions. There's nothing up on the wall. There's nothing that says to them that this is a this is what they imagine psychotherapy to be about. I don't have a suit. I don't smoke a pipe. And I have to sit there and I watch them look around and, and you know, the initial where am I? Yes. <laughs> and what right. happened to me? And you can just watch the suspicion walk in the in the door. Right. So you use the word there, um, desperate. What sort of factors contribute to a desperate situation for some of the people that you have to work with? What is it about New York that gives many of us this feeling, even though we don't know it very well? It's the way the competitiveness is um, is geared. Mm -hmm. and, and, and encourage. Basically, I mean, it's a generalization, it's a, to a certain extent an oversimplification, mm -hmm. but basically the city will use you as long as you're productive. Mm -hmm. And when you're not, they're not interested. And it's a general feeling that mm -hmm. pervades most of the professions and that pervades, you know, most of the, the ranks of advancement, you know, mm -hmm. as, you, as you're going up. They, they do not, um, the, the competition for space mm -hmm. is so fierce that you see enormously talented people and they're like grass on a lawn and mm. that creates an incredible sense of desperation because you know you could have been talented except, mm. but you're not going to get the chance there and they can watch this talent mm. and, and everything they've dreamed about it just and just get frozen out so the, so the, um you're saying one of the common i reinterpret yeah. this one of the common feelings among some of the clients that come to you is the feeling of is it of not getting anywhere, being as you say like grass on the lawn, and in such a competitive system, feeling of lacking, falling behind, being frozen out. Yeah, and well, if you take everybody comes with a, with all the problems that they developed over their mm. life. If you take somebody with this range of problems that all of us have, and you put the person in that kind of situation all the problems get exaggerated as well. And then they're in an area where they might have been functioning well on a less competitive, less mm. frenetic level. Mm. Put them in that situation and all the buttons start popping off. Mm -hmm. And there's this psychological explosion that takes place. And so at the same time as they have to deal with all of this intense competitiveness, they have to deal with the psychological unreadiness. Mm. Yes, right. that, that all the handicap that they come with now, which is getting in the way of their talent, in the way of uh, having all of their attention and all of their energy focused on the competitiveness. Mm. So, so they literally at that point begin to fall apart. Right. 
So then, the, so the person then um, comes to some awareness of the degree of suffering and stress, desperation going on in their life, and they can't. Person can't cope with it, so he or she then comes, finds out about you and other psychotherapists, finds out about you, and in what sounds like a fairly simple, if not austere, kind of setting from yeah. the description, then what's the next step in your relationship to that person? Giving out warmth, and the person feels, as you point out, a little bit strained, strange. Well, they've already been given something tangible because mm -hmm. they're going to come in for what amounts to a two-hour session mm -hmm. and they're free to set their own payment for that session. Now, this is so antithetical to what New York is where the you'll hear somebody say about their therapist and my therapist worked with me for the full hour. You know, yes. Not the 45 minutes or not the 50 minutes, but you know, I got the full, you know, I get mm. the full hour from mine and the fees are ranging anywhere from middle range from $65, $70 an hour on up to $175 an hour in, in, in some instances that I've heard of, and mm, yeah. it may even be higher for all I know. So you've got somebody coming in and already the, the sense of warmth comes not just from me speaking mm. to them, but they're already being given something here, mm. something very tangible and material mm. in a society that's very, very spare about what's given to somebody freely. They're being given two hours of time and attention devoted to them, and then they're free to set their own payment. And of course, this is the most unsettling mm. thing that you could possibly do to them, because now right. all the paranoia and all the suspicion is out, right? Well, who is this person who put my wallet away? Because they're probably going to steal my wallet on the yeah. way out. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So, why are you working in that way, rather than specifying what you need from a, an hour or two hour session? Mm. What, what's your motive? I've, I've tried at various times to set a fee. Yes. You know, I, I've thought in terms of things that I wanted to do for, for, for my wife, mm. you know, for, for my ex-wife, mm. who's a very dear friend of mine and a partner. And I sat once in Greece. Uh, we, we, were, we were in Santorini for three weeks, and I, I spent every night sitting out under the stars and thinking about, should I, should I set a fee? And the first thing I did was get my fee. You know, the number dropped into mine. That wasn't hard to find. Mm. Something inside changes when I think about that. And the work is, is not just the same for me. Mm. I, I wouldn't want to call it something blocked. It's just, it just seems to be a door that I shouldn't mm. walk through. I, I do a lot of work with my hands mm. through touching and through the use of subtle energy, which, mm. which facilitates somebody feeling. Mm. safe, secure, and having the energy infusion that they need to begin to speak about difficult mm. subjects. Right. I don't want to sell my hands. I just mm. don't feel right about that. And if somebody can approach th their side of the, of the mm. relationship with seeing into what they feel they want to give and also what they can sense that, that I need, then I don't feel as if I've sold my hands. I feel yeah. as if I've genuinely helped somebody. Mm. So the person then is n n now, anyway, faced with the simplicity of the setting, the certain, sounds like, informality, certainly the appearance, uh, of the relationship, and no, uh, not asked for a specific fee for the, the work. So what kind of responses come when 
people get exposed to this kind of situation and information. They begin to really open up despite mm. themselves. There's mm. something in it that says to them, this is real. Mm. And it's mm. real in a way that they may have been looking for something right. to be real and never had quite found it. But then there's that, oh, you know, that's a, George Bernard Shaw said it once, the, the two uh, tragedies in life. One is not getting your heart's desire. We all know that one. The second one is getting your heart's desire. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, and here's this instant fear that comes up. I have it now. What do I do yeah, with it? Right. Yeah, and one of the things that comes up sometimes is a fear of, I don't want to say the wrong thing and lose this situation. And that can also, you know, help somebody. They start to mm. swallow a lot of things that they would otherwise reveal about themselves. You know, instantly yes. they don't want me to dislike them. But usually the, the work through the touching, the work through mm. the, subtle, the subtle energy work and the meditation work helps to break that barrier down. Right. Yeah. So, for me to form the picture here, the person comes in, there's, it seems like, two forms of communication. One is the dialogue, and the other is the touch, the, the, the laying the hand. What actually, in kind of specific terms, goes on with the touch? I mean, in a, in a society, there's a lot of stress, tension, there's also a lot of fear and paranoia. An enormous amount. <laughs> enormous amount. Yeah. So, do you have to establish the trust, and to what degree, in order to be able yeah. to touch somebody? People who come to me usually come, have come by word of mouth. Right. So right. they've heard about the strangeness of the setting from their friend, who has already told them, don't go yes. running out the first time. You know, no. Stay. Okay. And, and usually people have seen their friends changing and their process mm. brightening. So yes. this is one, one reason why they're coming. But there's a sense about it. You, you, you can sense who I might have to wait a month, two months, or mm. several sessions, or somebody who I could begin to touch very gently while they're sitting, back mm. of the neck and over the crown of the head, right. and just let them feel that. One person who, uh, very, very difficult um, to, to reach, to mm. penetrate. Uh, I've worked with this person for two years and basically have, have not been able to do that mm. yet. It really fits the, the individual, but right. I'll try to use it building up to what mm. a touching treatment would be because there's an enormous amount of paranoia about it. So yes. I'll, I'll work in the safe areas, yeah. back of the neck and the head with somebody sitting before I'll have them lying down, learning about deep relaxation and coming to the ground, mm. learning part of the meditation process right. and being mm. able to, to land inside the breath mm. with their attention. At that point, that's somebody that uh, right. is fairly well... So you take as... Part of the work is sensing and seeing where the person is, yeah. and taking a gradual approach in terms of your uh, communication, physical touch, communication with, with the person. What's the purpose behind the touch factor? What's, what, what, what do you see is the impact of that, the intention behind that? Because you have it in, you know, you have it in Christianity, yes. laying of hands, you have it in massage, yeah. you know, I mean, wonder, um, where, in the work that you do, where does it fall between those kind of... It's the, it's such a powerful transfer and infusion of energy, which mm. is, is not my energy, yeah. it's, 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 it's the natural energy around us concentrating and then flowing through me okay, as, a, right. as an open door mm. at that point. It is so warm and reassuring mm. and so heartfelt that mm. people who wouldn't speak about some troubled or difficult 
area of their life have the support inside at that point to speak. And those who would speak but wouldn't come to the point, suddenly it's, it's sharper. And it really facilitates the, the, the inside process and the ability to just sit in a room and say things about yourself that you would have expected would have made you a pariah. And in, in your relationships in the past, have, whether right. it was family or, you know. So, in, in, so if I get the picture, in some way, through the contact, through the work of the hands, let's put it like that, the energy of it, that comes through, some kind of connection gets made which allows the person to open up their heart yes. more. Yes, that's really true. And are you saying that you find that that, as it were, a speedier vehicle than just dialoguing to reach somewhere. Absolutely, because in the dialoguing they have all their built-up dialoguing defenses. Ah, right. We can sit there and we can we can fence with those fences, yep. as, you know, mm -hmm. indefinitely. There was a woman working with me. Um, she had lived in Oklahoma City and worked with a, a psychiatrist there for a number of years, mm -hmm. who did some very very wonderful work with mm -hmm. with her. When she moved to New York, she, and after a while she began working with me, we finally, recently, put together a distortion and cleared that, put together a piece of her past. We really mm. cleared the distortion. Mm. It's one of those moments when something shifts in the human yeah, being, right. and you just watch that person walk out free. Yeah. And I asked her to please call her psychiatrist in Oklahoma City, because so much of the work belong to the foundation that he had laid. Mm. When she was describing the difference between his work and my work, mm -hmm. she said, you both really seem to work the same way, she said, but your work is faster. Mm. And it might be faster, of course, because his came first, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which immediately makes mine faster. Yeah, I yeah. get to look a lot better because yeah. he did the trench work, you know? <laughs> but right. but it, there is. Now, in that sense, I guess I work in the New York vein. You know, I, yeah. I, I, right. Without trying to be hooked into results, no. I have, I really do want to want to see them move as fast as they can, right. and the touch facilitates that okay. greatly. So let's say that there's um, yeah. to move for someone to move as fast as they can, or for someone to go from being in a place to being free from it. What kind of situations would you have in mind there? What would be the kind of suffering and the kind of shift which ends that suffering or changes that person's view or relationship or, or, or experience of themselves or situation? What, what, what? Hit the button. Hit the button. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. exactly. exactly. Right. Um, this is a, a young woman who, um, who thought she had been molested by her father. Mm -hmm. And her father had subsequently um, had mental illness yeah. later on in life, and it was yeah. caused by physical trauma. Mm. And she split off. She just split. She split into a whole bunch of different um, personas that mm. she wore but, uh, in order to get her through life. But mm. there was no real integration and a terrible fright and feeling and constantly thinking that one, that she had been molested and two, that she was definitely doomed to go mentally ill herself. Mm. In the work that, that she and I did, what became clear to her 
And again, this is where the touch facilitated it, because mm -hmm. when she would go into a deep state mm -hmm. on the ground, and you're being touched in, in this way about 14 or 15 different places around the body, mm -hmm. a lot of emphasis on the head, but yeah. the abdomen and the back as, as yeah. well, legs, she could never come up with a memory of anything other than a loving father playing with a small child and very physically demonstrative. And in that deep state, she loved it, she delighted in it, and then she would come back out having answered questions rapid fire in the yeah. sense of no hesitation and there was no evidence at all. What we did find was a mother who from day one was around the bend and interpreted the love between this woman mm -hmm. and her father as dirty and lewd mm -hmm. and wrong and probably there was a tremendous amount of jealousy mm -hmm. and she actually carried her mother's interpretation as her memory and it was the central point in her life and that was was cleared away uh, she right, was right. she was free of her right. mother's interpretation right and right. she had the memory of a loving father back i remember the the session where she it, when it just dropped in and at the end of it, she was in tears, and she just said, thank you, Norm, for giving that back to me. Mm. I was in tears. Mm. She's immediately telling her, call her psychiatrist in Oklahoma City, he'll be in tears. Yeah, Everybody yeah. should be in tears yeah, with right. this one, you know? Yeah. 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 And I don't know how long that would have taken, because when I would talk to her, and we would just be talking, mm. you can hear the mind shutting down around the question. Right. right. Now, I never agreed with narcotherapy, you know, where they used chemical substances to shake loose a memory, yeah. you know, literally, it's sodium, you know, it's truth serum, truth serum time. Mm -hmm. But the, one of my clients, when I'd say, come on, yeah. if we're having a difficult time verbally, I'd say, come on, lie down. It's time to go to the ground, time to touch, and say, oh, Reiki truth serum. <laughs> yeah. really? Because the energy has that effect. Mm -hmm. It just has that beautifully opening effect it, it just touches the heart now we're also talking about the presence of of, of god here mm. we're talking about the presence of that powerful creative force well, mm. however you, you want to name it and there was never any reason to dissociate this yeah. from psychotherapy somehow that split has taken place but that split is just as dangerous as the split that this woman from so, oklahoma city was doing right so one aspect here of um, of the work is through the hands and through the communication the person gains some in a way liberating insight with regard to some past experiences would you say that's a primary thread in the work that you do the person is working to understand their past and therefore to not really no not really because the not a whole lot happens if we're just stuck in the past no, and right. sorting out past memories. What I'm leaving out is all the work that I've been doing, have been doing with this woman on her present circumstances. I mm. mean, everything from the past is contained in everything we're doing right now in right. the present. Mm. And a lot of the work is in the present. So we're using not just the investigation of the past, mm. we're using the present events of their lives mm. to begin changing the past. Because without that mm. real immersion in the present moment of their lives, mm. It becomes uh, an archaeological expedition, you know, which right. can be very fascinating, but it won't change today. Right, let's, let's take, let's bring 
some specific kinds of people okay. and personalities that you work with. And I'm thinking not only of so-called successful people, well, okay. but people on the peripheries, whether it might be people in, through drugs or through prostitution, or, or just through whatever it might be, or crime or whatever. What, what, what happens in those kinds? What happens in those kind of relationships? I don't work with them in the sense of, of, of changing their behavior according to some, some rule of health. No, right. What, I'm, wh what basically I'm, I'm involved with is that they come to a real clear and honest understanding of what they're doing. Right. And then find the balance mm. and the harmony in it for them. So yeah. the first thing that they have to feel from me mm. is that it doesn't make a whole lot of difference to me if I'm talking to a prostitute or I'm talking to somebody who's working for the Chase Manhattan Bank. Right. If they feel any difference from me, and it can't just be a clinical non-difference no, no, either. No. I mean, this, this right. is it. I could think of the element of my life that's, mm. um, that looks like prostitution. You come to Norm's studio, and he'll love you for a couple of hours and then leave some money on the way out. There's a, you know, there's a striking yeah. similarity between what I do and what a prostitute right. does. Right. It's very hard for me right. to, to say no to that behavior. So, you know, are you saying here then that the actual role of the person, the bank clerk and the prostitute, isn't really the issue. It, not at all. Not at all. Right. The issue is what they're doing mm. inside the context mm. of what they've chosen to do. And once they have the freedom to be that person, mm. they'll talk to me a lot easier about right. who that person is. So in other words, by, by you not um, making differences between one and the other, the person doesn't feel judged. Is that what you say? That's that right. gives that That's person right. more feeling of comfort to say what's going on. I'm talking about a person who's a prostitute, let's say. Absolutely. And then I have, you know, one night a week I have a meditation class mm. for all the people who work in private session with me. Mm. And so then there they are, all sitting in the same room, mm. working together, and, and learning each other and mm. meeting each other inside the work. They're mm. learning the meditation work. They're learning the touching work. Mm. Now, I know what all of them do. Yes, right. I know who all of them are. Mm. And it's wonderful because they don't know. And you watch and you see the non-difference between all of them. Yes, They're just right. sitting there learning each other. Oh, yeah, that's so-and-so. So-and-so tends to snore a little bit when we've been lying on the ground too long. Mm. You know, it drifts right. off. And has no idea of who that person no, is. No. And they're meeting as human beings. Mm. Right. Very often, they might not know somebody's name in a class mm. until I've mentioned it. This is, seems quite unusual. One tends to, I, I think, one tends to think of psychotherapists as primarily working just on the one-to-one. -one. And I don't, can't think of psychotherapists who would do something like bring them together, the clients together, for a, a, an evening or a period. Well, it's, it's certainly not done in the form of group therapy, because no. when somebody's asking a question about the, the process, or what's taking place mm. inside the work, or an experience they've had at the end of this, mm. at the end of the session, they're talking to me directly, and they're also learning. And I'll answer them directly, but it's not open to comment from anybody no. else. What that helps along is the ability to be this person in front of somebody else without shame or guilt. Now mm. they'll hear a lot from me about the circumstances of my life. They'll mm. hear about the, they'll hear about the drugs I did. Mm. They'll hear about the time in combat. They'll hear about growing up in the in, in the streets of Brooklyn. Mm. So that whole edge is taken mm. off of mm. one person once said to me, How can you sit up there and tell such 
horrible stories right. about yourself. And right. The only answer I have in them because they're true. All right. So what what do what do you see here, Norman, as the value for the client in hearing about your experience? Because in some schools, to take psychoanalysis, right. you don't get a whisper of information. You got, you, they would regard themselves almost as being a blank sheet. If I remember, in classical psychoanalysis. I never met a blank sheet I really wanted to talk to for a long time, but I'm sure they do. You know? <laughs> so, but here you're actually generating out quite a lot of your personal history yeah. to the to the client. What do you think is the value of doing that? We're in this together. I may be. I may have certain experiences that have moved me and to discover certain things mm -hmm. and have developed certain skills around them. Mm -hmm. But there's not a whole lot of difference if you filter out that skill right. and those and those right. discoveries. I'm struggling with my work on my level, yeah. with my own decisions, with so, my own fears, right. with my own problems. Mm -hmm. And if they can't sense that I really understand that about myself, then I'm just one more authority in their life that right. they're forced to come to because they're desperate mm -hmm. and they don't know where else to go to help. And then it stops being a conversation, a human conversation. Mm. It stops being teaching. Real, real deep therapy is just teaching. It's mm. teaching them how not only to understand it, but how to have the tools and the skills to not be dependent mm. on me. Mm. That's what the meditation work and the touching work and the class is all about. So that here, now... This is how you do it. Mm. This is how you look into the mind and let the mind speak to you. This is how you hear the body. Right. What yeah. about, as the illustration you just gave, the woman says, no one, how can you tell such stories about your, yourself? There's, obviously there's some surprise, shock, reaction or what, whatever. So how do you respond when... I, I told her, it's, it's, simply, it's simply true. Now, if I've done these things, Mm. and I've sorted through them, mm. then the sense of shame about them can obviously be let go of. Right. If I'm still, if I'm still ashamed of them, mm. then there's still a large part of non-acceptance of me. Mm. Now, not being ashamed doesn't mean you don't want to change it. Not being ashamed doesn't mean you're not taking responsibility. Mm. It means acceptance of the fact that human beings do do these things. Yeah, all right. And it's something to grow through, not something to hide under a rock. Right. Because so it happens. Right. So, in a way, it seems there's uh, a mutual experience of sharing and opening up. Very right? much going, so. Uh, going on between yourself and the, the client. Very, very much so. Right. Yeah. Do you think, because I think one of the, the classical problems seems to be projection upon the therapist. Does that influence, that affect that relationship in any way? They, they, it could increase the sense of awe and wonder. My God, this guy, he's worked through this and he's worked through that. He must be incredible. It, I mean, it could accelerate the projection, couldn't it? It could, but they hear the areas where I'm also still working. Mm. And it's made very clear to them where I'm still working. I'll talk to them about... Uh, if the example is appropriate, if I see somebody stuck, mm. I'll let them know where I'm stuck. Mm. Let them see my reaction to my stuckness. Mm. And that their reaction is not necessarily the only reaction that mm. can take place. Right. And then we have a conversation going about, well, how do you deal with being stuck? 
okay, you're stuck, I'm stuck. Then I can talk to them about how I'm dealing with it. Mm, right. And in that way, right. encourage some change in the process. Right. So the use, the mutual use, in a way, of personal experience contributes to both of you coming up at points of stuckness. Yes and no. I, I've, I'll be able to come out of the stuckness if I don't have my clients. Right. That was, that was the purpose of going away alone and learning how to do that. Right. They won't come out unless they find some teacher oh, I see. Okay. who, will, right. who, who mm. whether it's through personal example, right. will show them alternatives, yeah. things that they can learn that will help them, that will help them through it. Mm. All right. So, in the, in, like, um, shift for a moment. And um, two things that you've mentioned, one is uh, energy, and God, and I mean the concept of energy gets sometimes used with such frequency one begins yeah. it begins to almost become abstract. Yeah. And so I think somebody with God, you know, when his the word God, then can't quite relate what's, what's these two concepts actually relating relating to. So would you say with the work that you do that it's Primarily psychotherapy, which to me would mean working on unresolved emotional problems. And where does something like energy or God or something vaster yeah. come in? It, it, really, it really doesn't break or down. Meditation, yeah, it doesn't break down in my mind no. that way. When the right. person comes in the room, mm. it's you develop a sense of what that person is coming for and which approach is yeah. going to work better for them. For some people, a more verbal approach, mm. supported by the other practices, is necessary. Mm. For somebody else, the more silent approaches mm. and going through the meditation work more deeply and right. going through the, the learning how to use the sense of mm. touch more deeply opens up the doors right. for them, and the verbal process just comes in under that and oh, supports right. it. Mm. It's uh, all within the range that I can do. Mm. I'll be anything they need me to be. Right, all right. So what I'm hearing here is that you have a number of, of resources available to you. Hands, and, and the energy that goes with that. Uh, meditation, meditation. Method, method technique, those forms. And... Um, the communication, the dialogue as a therapist, natural. And is it that in using these resources there's more or less a response of using any one of them to what the person needs? Is it, is, am I getting the picture right? You see this um, person needs the dialoguing, or at this moment needs hands or meditation, and that's what you're That's what I'll do, yeah. That's right. So, and it's a shifting process mm. inside the people, so you know that'll shift from session to session. Mm. It's not just one continuous, you know, need that this person. But has. you know, what, what about with the person that comes, and the person says, "I am like this. I am experiencing this," and some time goes by. You work with this person over weeks or months, and you get the feeling that really the person isn't really interested in some really deep fundamental change. It's more the shoulder to cry on syndrome. More just someone to talk to who's going to be nice and listening. But there's nothing really going on to make change inside the person. Then what do you do with it? 
I shift gears real fast and become real Brooklyn Direct. Let's, let's, let's Brooklyn, let's you know, Brooklyn Direct is, I'll just sit there and basically say to the person, listen, I've heard this now 20 times. All right, okay. It's getting boring. <laughs> it must be boring you because it's certainly boring me. Yeah. We can do this for the next three years. I'll get paid for it. Nothing's going to happen for you. Can we go someplace else? Or do you want to keep doing it? And when, when you speak in that uh, in a very explicit way, what kind of response do you get? Invariably. I mean, th if, I, if I put this on statistics, this is just... Yeah, I'm okay. sure I'm running about eight or nine out of ten. Mm. They respond. There's a certain amount of, right, I know I'm doing this. Now, I've said it in a way, now my voice might be forceful, but it's coming in. Hey, this is somebody who really likes me. This is somebody... I'm getting two hours from, I get to set my own fee. Uh, a lot of times, if I'm, I don't really have a lunch hour now, so yeah. if I need to eat and it's a client who's coming in at lunch hour, they'll eat with me and we'll, we'll do the session while we're having food together. This is, there's a real sense of that directness sits on that foundation yeah, yeah. and they'll respond. They mm. really respond. I've, I've heard people say, yeah, that's right. Once I, with a client who I'd had for quite a while was really just spinning around and spinning around and spinning around and this was somebody that I really could get around with as, as well as work mm. seriously with and I told her listen if you keep this up I'm I, there's something I'd rather watch on television and <laughs> and I turned on the television set and she watched with me we watched for about 15 minutes I said you had enough of this and I she said yeah I said so have I we turned it off we went back to work and the work just went beautifully from there Right, right. You know, with, uh, with one person, I was extremely tired once. I mean, I was really, uh, it, was a, it was a week where the, mm -hmm. the week was about a 70 or 75-hour week, and I was, I was losing it in this session. And I looked, it up her, looked up at her and I said, you've got to give me some help here. Make it interesting or you're going to lose me. That woman did the best session she had done in like about six weeks because she looked at me and saw, this is true. Right, right. <laughs> this guy is fading out, you know? Right, right. Yeah. What if, what if, uh, take another example. Well, um, some might call the idle rich, who person comes to see you because it's almost fashionable to have. Again, this is the images we get in the Almost fashionable to have a psychotherapist um, that one goes to see, and you you get the sense that. Um, the person's lifestyle, right? the way they relate to money, to other people, um, is basically they want to feel comfortable with the lifestyle, you know, you know rabid consumerism. Right. And then what do you do? You know, you have this kind of person that comes. But what, what? The, the, the person in, in those circumstances, and of course I'm thinking back to examples in my own mind. Of which course, is, yeah. They don't stay very, very long mm. because the work is not easy. It's not easy when you're in a room with somebody who is going to say to you, listen, we could stay and spin this story for the next 20 years. This is getting boring. Yeah. It's not easy when you have to either in a sitting posture or lying down on the ground go through the meditation process yeah. of going into the breath as a means of creating stillness so that you can develop insight. 
this person is then going to be shaking up forces inside of themselves, mm. which they're trying to bury under the consumerism. Mm. And at that point, they're going to bury me. <laughs> they're, going to yes. get, they're going to get right out of there. So that really doesn't last very long. If, if yeah. somebody's not prepared to work, I'm not prepared to humor that. Mm. And, I don't, and I mean it in the sense of humoring. I, in many respects, I don't think the therapist will let somebody just spin themselves through these labyrinths and hallways of their, of their own problems indefinitely, yeah. or doing them uh, a service. Isn't there, you see, is, what about the, the danger? Here's a situation like New York, where you know, a common conception of it is this uh, environment, a social environment of um, tension and hostility. The person then comes to you through the touch, through the communication, through the meditation, their inner world comes out. And with it, quite a lot of release of emotional material. Then you're with this person this hour to two hour period. And then in a way, they're going straight back out into the streets of New York, possibly quite vulnerable because a lot of their defenses and their resistances have, uh, have dropped away. How, uh, how does the person make the transition from an intense session with you to one of being back in Brooklyn or wherever? With a great deal of difficulty, <laughs> and very, very slowly, if possible. Sometimes, if I see that somebody is too open at that right. moment, mm. uh, I might have them go, I work in my, in my apartment, it's a two-room apartment, I might have them go into the, into the room next door and lay down. I might leave them the apartment and take my next client to Central Park where mm. I'm close to for a walk. I do a lot of sessions outdoors right. walking through the park with people yeah. when the weather permits because it, it again it changes the situation. It's not this this clinical situation. Mm. You know, it's not it's not a white coat situation. We can work just as well on a on a park bench yeah. doing meditation work with outdoor sounds and sights with green surrounding us with, mm. with birds. As and in New York nobody cares about anything. You can touch somebody on the neck and the head in New York, nobody even pays any attention to it. They you know they yeah. they don't care. It's, yeah. you know, just right. walk right by you. Right. Yeah. So in other words you, you use different settings sure. in your like meals as you mentioned and, and the the park park situa situation. In in that, again, to get a little bit back, where does, quote-unquote, the spiritual, or the religious, what does, all, what does that mean for you, both for yourself and for your working with Okay, well, we've got, got this person, uh, we've got this person lying in the room, so yeah. they're, they're going to be able to get up and leave yeah. at their own pace. I may work with them if I have time, you know, between clients, sometimes yeah. there's a half hour or so between clients, so that I can gradually step them mm -hmm. back into the world with an appreciation of what's out there as right. well as the openness that they have. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I, they have telephone access to me mm -hmm. all week long from Monday to Friday. Mm -hmm. That person who's just stepped out so yeah. open gets home and needs to call me. Yes, right. They call me. I'll right. spend as much time as I can mm -hmm. or as they need to or some blend of the two on the phone with them. Mm, right. So that's partially where you start uh, to yes, soften the, the, the going back into mm -hmm. the outside world. It's not, well, now the next mm -hmm. time you reach me is the next time we have a session. Mm -hmm. They can call. Right. 
So let, let's let us yeah. take it. So there's a situation where, in the course of time, through the forms that you describe, you make a you know connection and the relationship is formed and the person is working on themselves. At what point in that do you know or does the client know that he or she needs to step, make a change? Because isn't there the possibility that out of insight sometimes and out of appreciation can come dependency? Yeah. Well, I mean, when does the person know, right, I work with Norman and I need to, to find my own way? Or what, what, what's, what's, the, what's the process for ending as much as this with the beginning? The, there's a real gradual shift into not needing to talk to me about the the current decisions mm. that they're making. Yeah. And I'll start to notice somebody coming in and telling me about the decisions they've recently made. And at mm. that point, I'm a, I'm a confirmation for that. They're just checking it out with right, me. Right. And you can start to see the shift. Now, mm. at that point... They may decide to continue working with me because they love the meditation work. Mm. And they really shift into just being students of the, of, of the work. Mm. And the energy work, the touching right. work, really has uh, an appeal to their lives that it's right. something that they want to continue. So if I, if I yeah. can get this clear enough, there can be, as you're saying, in the total process of the interaction between you and the client, point or signal come clear to you that the person is taking more responsibility for their life, able to make much more their own decisions, they're, they're communicating that to you, and also there is more access availability or accessibility to meditation processes and energy. Yes, and at a certain point... The so let's focus, okay, let's focus on as it were, personal suffering, in a way. Is that what it's like? And more on something else? What's you can just see the change mm. inside this person. The, the sense of being overwhelmed mm. by the problems, by the forces within, yeah. has shifted. Okay. The, the response is a different response inside of them yeah. to, their, to their own problems. They get this lessening of dependence on me right from the very beginning, because I spend approximately four to six months a year teaching workshops and retreats in Europe. Yes. So I'm going to be away for a month at a time. Mm. And, you know, this is usually, they talk about August as the panic month in New York City because everybody's therapist is on vacation. <laughs> so they've got panic month coming in February because I'm in Austria teaching, right? They've got it coming up in May because I'm here in Britain and Austria and then in July. And in those times away, they get to really test inside themselves the work that we've just been doing and that really facilitates the process of not being dependent mm. on me. Right, right. Um, they can call but it's a very expensive session when you have to call me transatlantic and yes, spend time right. on, especially, to, they don't, nobody ever wants to do two hours on the phone transatlantic, mm. it's a shorter right. session. Yeah. Do you, when, you, when you see that the client's activities are working against their self-interest, to change it. No. But I can't point that out very directly. This happened with a young man recently who um, who came uh, came here to Britain mm. to work with me. It was clear that the way he was living his working life and his personal life mm. was destroying him. Mm. 
and it was something that we were discussing from day one mm-hmm. in the in the sessions. We I would work, we would do a wonderful session, mm-hmm. but at the end of every session I would point out, none of this is going to take place if you don't create room for it to take place. Mm-hmm. Look at the calendar, look at the schedule. There's no room. We'll have a great session. We'll talk about it. You'll feel great, but you're going to walk out of here into a 70-hour week again. Nothing's going to shift. Mm, now, I'll work directly cool. with, because it's, it's a little, it's no different than saying to somebody, look, the sky is blue. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with pointing that out so long as I'm still willing to put in the patience and the time mm, and the effort. Yeah, actually. It, exactly, to help until it drops in with the person and then work on all the reasons why they can't hear that and, and work with that. But you can work with direct pieces of information. Clients, they love it. They love it. They've gone through their whole life with nobody, you know, with everybody saying the emperor was wearing clothes. <laughs> they're right. so happy to hear that they're not the only ones thinking the emperor is naked, you know, that they're yeah. delighted, you know, it's wonderful, and suddenly you're having an honest conversation, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, the person yeah. really begins to have the information available to yeah. them. It resounds, it echoes. Mm-hmm. It, you, you feel it in the 70-hour yeah. schedule in this case, and some, some change becomes possible. What's, where the person's making has or is making those kind of changes in their activities as much as in their relationship to their activities. So there is more um, greater integration. What's, and less suffering, what's meditation and those processes going to do for them? Help them develop the insight that will enable them to see beyond their immediate circumstances uh-huh. to the nature of themselves in relation to the unknown. Right. So what, 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 what kind of meditations will help them contribute to the person going beyond their immediate circumstances towards something vast? Or I keep it very simple mm-hmm. and in many respects very traditional. Just the, the simple following the awareness of the breath, mm-hmm. enabling them to create the room to hear the mind mm-hmm. in its thought process, mm-hmm. to hear the body, to hear the emotions. Most of the confusion comes because people don't know when they're thinking, and they don't really identify what they're thinking no. or what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. It's like really going back and building a primer for some people. I remember one person saying to me, oh, that's anger. I thought anger was when you're yelling and screaming at somebody and yeah, throwing yeah. rocks. Mm-hmm. And then to begin to see, and to have the space to see the formation of these moods and these internal conditions, it just opens up a whole world to them that they were never educated in. Right, so the meditation worker process is giving people access to a much more subtle level of various forms of experience. Yes. Yes, like, de- like yes, definitely. So, and from there, it leads to the the question of their whole relationship to to their communities, to the people around them, right. to to the sense of um, community taken into nationhood, which basically leads. I mean, mm. at a certain point, you you have to look at yourself in relation to to death. You have yeah. to look at yourself in relation to a universe mm. that incorporates you, and you cannot be larger than. Right. Which is a frightening thought for most people. Right. Right. So there's. In a way, what you're describing is a movement that's going on for the client from a state of personal suffering, desperation, and an internalized pain to 
the transformation of that to being able to be aware or connect with the larger issues of life beyond their personal circumstances. Absolutely, and it's the blend of the two mm. that really enables them to be um, to be a fully mm. developed human being. The I, I, I know that there but there's a lot of conversation about the the difference between psychotherapy and meditation. Yes, I've right. always looked at them as complementary yes. processes if you True. just take the name out. Mm. The, you, you're dealing with the development of self mm. in you can't deal with the development of self except in relation to the universe in which yeah. self was formed. Oh, right. And right. it's just a question of which tools you're going to come into and which approach you're going to mm. take. I like the more personal approach. Yeah. Mm. I just love working that, that mm. directly with, with people. I, mm. I like it because it, it's earthier. Yeah. And I've always felt that that's, that's the way to go, to step it out very directly from... Mm -hmm. within the framework of one's own impulses and, and problems. Yeah, right. But you can't leave the world that myopic, no. and you can't leave their, the question of their problems that narrowly defined, because it isn't in reality. Mm. And that's an important thing that some they, will, they begin to face as they develop more of a ground and a confidence mm. in themselves. They can come out to that larger context. Right, right. Even in New York. Even in New York, exactly. <laughs> Even there, yeah. Good. Is there anything else that you wanted to uh, add here? No, anything that you a little bit on the, on, the, on the issue of dependency. Very, mm. very yeah. often now, clients uh, of mine, students of mine in New York, will will travel with me to Europe mm. so that they can get a fuller taste of the of the meditation work in mm. retreats surroundings mm. where the concepts of silence and going deep within oneself take yeah. place. I had a very interesting comment from one on the issue of dependency. She worked with me in February in Austria, and at the end of the retreat said that she, she was afraid that she would go back to New York now, and she wouldn't get to know me as well as she could. She wouldn't get to spend the time with me that she could, and she would lose all the work that had happened in Austria. Mm. She came back to New York, and of course that didn't happen. She asked for more time. And she got it because she was working with the time. Yes. Mm. And there was a slump, but she didn't. She didn't lose the the practice. Mm. Then she came here to Devon, and worked with me here in Devon. This this mm. this past retreat, and she said, "Now I'm afraid that I'll come back to New York, and I'll see too much of you, and the practice will become everything." <laughs> now we now we have both poles established. <laughs> now now we can find the middle ground and the balance in between. Yeah. Very good. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Very good. Perhaps we could just shift to the biographical. Sure. Okay, to sure. Conclude. So just say, please, a little bit about your um, personal history from um, over a five or ten minute period, including childhood kind of background. Brooklyn, you mentioned being in combat relationship. Yeah. I, I grew up in, in, in Brighton Beach in, in, in Brooklyn. Mm. Uh, I was born there in 1941. It was, uh, I was in university at, uh, at 15. Mm. I was in a military university planning on making the, the army my career. Mm. And Where was that? That was in New Mexico. Mm, right. and, yeah, real so how did you get from Brooklyn, I mean... To New Mexico? Yeah, right. 
they were the only military university that would accept me under the age of 16. Oh, I see. Okay. So, <laughs> so there I was, you know, by, by, by choice. And it turned out to be a wonderful place to go. Mm. They were, it was an excellent school, but I was pretty burned out by, um, by 19 when, uh, when I graduated from university with already having dropped out a year and a half. Mm. In between, the, the academic part always came so relatively easily. Roughly, yeah, yeah. Right. The, the academic part came relatively easy. Mm. The um, the sense of understanding the process and putting it together mm. in some coherent form yeah. did, did not. I became. Um, I studied psychology at Ohio State University. Ohio State. Ohio State. Yes, yeah, sir. And mm -hmm. um, and then in um, in Aberdeen, Scotland, at uh, King's College in Aberdeen. Mm and was terrified of, of practicing. What, what does practice? You've used the word a few times. You say practice? Practicing as a psychotherapist. Oh, as a psychotherapist. Yeah, yeah, I was I was terrified of that. I was because terrified of making a mistake and, oh. and, and deeply affect I, I had problems with perfection. Mm. Right. <laughs> you know, and overachieving. Yes. And uh, but I was terrified of making a mistake and really deeply affecting mm. somebody's life that way. Mm. And uh, at that point, I still had a tremendous desire to write, so I, I spent 20 years as a professional writer. I just walked away from it. What did you, what did you write? A lot of um, non-fiction about the sea, uh, a book about the ocean, which I uh, wrote with, um, co-wrote with a dear friend of mine who was the director of the New York Aquarium and mm -hmm. the Marine Science Laboratories there, the Osborne Laboratories, and a lot of poetry. Mm -hmm. and, um, so what age to what age was it, is it 20 year period? Well, yeah. that was roughly from about uh, 20 to, to 40. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time moving all over the world, mm -hmm. I, and I found my way through a war in the Middle East in 67, where, where, where I used to live. This is the Israeli, Israeli the other yeah, Six-Day War. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I lived there for four years. And what were you doing in that four-year period? Excuse me? What were you doing? In the war? Yeah. Trying to stay alive. It was, uh, uh, we were very lucky where we were, but it was, it, it was just as dirty as everywhere else. And you, so, and this is, you went there because of your Jewish background? No, no. Uh, it's again, it's that, it's that very personal issue. I had lived there before in 62 uh, and 63, mm -hmm. after I had, uh, left university yeah. and I was just living in the desert and having a wonderful time down there. Mm. Uh, if you had to be uh, at loose ends and not know what mm. life was about and what you were going to do in it, the desert was a lovely place to be. Yeah, yeah. And it became very personal to me in 67. I had such uh, deep friendships with people mm -hmm. and I was uh, trained. I was trained in military university and in the U.S. Army, so I, at that point, went back. It was it was something I, I couldn't have described it in terms of being Jewish or nationhood. No. It, it was just a feeling that I had to be with them mm. at that point, and I, and, uh, I mean, and so I went back. It was quite a common phenomenon, wasn't it? I mean, didn't, if I remember rightly, quite a number of people went or went back. Very yeah, it, it was it it was, and people who wanted to go, you know, obviously I don't I don't know what their mm. motives were, but th there was a whole bunch of us. I remember, on the plane from uh, Paris where I had to change, it landed in Athens, and then from Athens on, uh, it went to Tel Aviv. Everybody in that plane got off except ten people. We were the ones going from Athens to 
Tel Aviv, and this is the end of May, the war is only a week away, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I remember the feeling that we had just looking around and seeing this virtually empty plane and just seeing each other now, and it was a feeling of, well, we know each other. The We just began talking to each other. And there we were, you know. Then we got to the airport and everybody went in their separate directions finding, you know, where their spot in the, yeah. in, in, in the situation was. So, so when you went there, it wasn't actually to, to fight? It was. I knew I would get into the fighting oh, because yeah. I was 26. Yeah. My friends were all in their 20s. I knew they were going and I knew that I would go with them. I wasn't going to deliver mail. That's not why I went. No. And there was a part of me that needed to to be there at the at the time. It was mm. I, it was the point at which that with mm. the, the my association with that really finished. It took a few years after that, but mm. that's the point at which it finished. It was it was just crazy. Mm. I, I, at that time, I, I in May June of '67, uh, I was living in a cave in uh, on a Greek island. And I remember perhaps a little transistor radio getting reports across. When the first the shells went off, I wished I was in a cave anywhere. Yeah, okay. <laughs> where I was. How do, when did you leave there from after 67? I, I left right after the war because I, I was still in the reserves in the American Army and uh, I had to go back. Mm. I had wangled, you know, so to miss some meetings. You know, you met once a month. Yeah. And, um, and then I went back in um, 1970 to live, mm. and lived there again from 70 until 73. Mm. But then I had done a lot of traveling in Jordan as well. We were able to, we actually walked across the bridge. We mm. were thrown out three times. We kept going back and back. We finally got in to Jordan over the Allenby Bridge. We were the first people when there was a shift in the government at that point mm. to actually be allowed to, to do that. And it was fascinating uh, being on the other side. I was living in Jerusalem at the time with my wife, Laura, and it reached a point where I felt that I had friends on both sides, mm. and I didn't have the maturity to sit in the middle of both friendships, and I knew I couldn't fight on either side. And at that point, I knew I had to leave the area because I didn't, like I said, I didn't have the maturity at that point to know how to sit in the middle. No, no. And I just knew that you, you couldn't stay there and either know the middle. No. If you didn't, you had to be on one side or yes. the other side. So at that point, we, at yes. that point, I left. Okay. And then what happened when you got back after the 73? You mentioned, like, drugs earlier on. Yeah, that's, you know, I did a lot of those, yes. and uh, they didn't work. Uh, they, but they accelerated the process of getting down there because nothing will get you more in touch with the feeling of death than mm. drugs or a war or a combination yeah. of the two. Yeah. And I started. To, I be, became a heavy user, and I started. What's a heavy user? What, what's as a friend of mine put it, a day that we didn't do something was a different day. <laughs> <laughs> That's a heavy user. Yes, yes, yes. And. Um, so New York was the base when you came back? No, we went upstate. We went into the Hudson Valley and oh, started renting upstate mm -hmm. and renting houses. I was still writing, and 
there was a sense of of needing some integration, mm. needing some sense of the the isolation, and was was too much at this point. Mm. The isolation and, and problems and forces, I I could understand them intellectually. I could still yeah. get an A on the exam in psychology, but but yeah. the sense of being able to enact them and and, and live through the uh, solutions wasn't taking place. No. The drugs were accelerating this inside process, though, but they were also wasting my body. Mm. and wasting me yes. and they there was a there was a taint there was a stench around them that mm. said that this you know I, one yoga teacher I had, had once called this a back door to heaven mm. and he said you can't come through the back door too long yeah, yeah. <laughs> and at that point I just really felt the death of it inside my body some of my friends had died and there was such a feeling of I'm killing myself mm. that finally I I just stopped and I had experienced such wonderful sensations in uh, in yoga in mm. particular the the corpse breath the deep relaxation on the ground that went beyond just the physical training that I was used to that I could actually feel the lightning that took place through those processes and that lightning was so valuable mm. I, I just Without really even knowing uh, a whole lot of background, yeah. I just reached for the experience yes. of it, which which seemed to be so life restoring. You know? So you moved yeah. through a drug phase. Then, when you were another thing that offered that made themselves available, got in contact. Then the drug period yeah. came out. Yeah, it really did. I mean, literally, I was still smoking uh, cigarettes at the time, yes. and I would go in and do, you know, do an hour of yoga and strangle on my breath, but finally feel better at the end of it, and still come out and take a cigarette when yes. I left, you know, when I left the room. There was, there well, was, there was a transition when, period. When did for the sure. transition, though, in terms of the years? What, what period are we now? We're we're in the we're in the middle seventies. Yeah, right early early to middle seventies. Started qualifying in terms of psychology. Right. When did you start making the shift into being a psychotherapist and uh, using the psychotherapy body work and uh, meditation? It, it came about pretty um, pretty much by accident. Mm -hmm. The I I did a, an extensive amount of meditation work, mm -hmm. and then I just went off on my own, and Laura was coming up on the weekends, so mm -hmm. it wasn't complete isolation, but basically I was living in a house in the woods with my cats mm -hmm. during the week. Uh, I was still doing some writing, but basically I was doing a 12 to 15 hour a day schedule of practice mm -hmm. in, in, in meditation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And things were changing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I realized I was doing some substitute teaching in a local high school mm -hmm. in order to help pay bills and straighten out my finances. Mm -hmm. and I never met a junkie yet who walked out of it, you know, in the black financially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and that was very important because I went into that school not as a writer and a poet published and, and everything. I went in as a $30 a day substitute teacher. Mm. And that was really an important job for me to have mm. and to do well and to do fully and to let myself scale into being mm. a thirty dollar a day substitute teacher. I remember that. Though. That was in Carmel, New York. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and out of that I re realized that I did want to teach. Mm -hmm. But what became apparent was that what I wanted to teach was not what I would be teaching in the high schools, either English or writing or social studies. I wanted to teach uh, meditation. Mm. I began as a meditation teacher. 
but people would talk about the process that they were going through yeah. and then everything that seemed to that I had in this background mm. just came in the door with it and we would be talking about the things that were coming up the, the problems mm. that they were expressing and I just found myself leaning more and more in that direction yeah. and yeah. so it became a part of it I never called myself a therapist yeah. and, and people started calling me a therapist so I said, okay, you know, if, <laughs> right, if, if that fits, then, yeah. then, you know, then, then we'll do that. But I'd never thought of it as going back and becoming a psychotherapist. So, as you spoke there, just two or three questions just outstanding. Um, one would be, um, you said you brought up in Brighton Beach. How would you describe that suburb, that area? Oh, it's, it's, it, it was just the most incredible place in the world to me as a child because we had the city, we had the concrete, mm -hmm. and we had the beach right in front of us. Mm. So we were city kids and we also weren't city kids and there was a freedom and a wildness What's on that the beach. situation there? Yeah. Oh, we were, we were uh, lower middle class, middle middle class, we were working yeah. class, mm. some people in, okay. in businesses. Yeah. Uh, the other is, what age did you get married? When what year did you get married? Uh, I'm, I've been married uh, several dozen times, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> I was married, uh, I've been married four times. Oh, right. Actually, same time. Uh, right, five if you count the fact that I've been married to my present wife twice. We married, right. divorced, and got back together again. Okay. Um, but the two marriages in my life right. are the one that uh, in 1967, right after the war, I went back to Scotland mm -hmm. and married uh, Laura, who was my wife for 16 years. American or She's Scottish, Scottish, and we knew each other at university. And right. during the war, it, uh, I remember when the shooting started, I, it was just as clear to me as anything that I'd ever experienced that I was in law school at the time to mm -hmm. please my parents and working during the day for a labor union as a, uh, as a writer, propagandist yes. for them. Mm -hmm. And I realized that uh, if I lived, I was going home, I was leaving law school, mm -hmm. and I was going to continue writing, but writing the things that I wanted to. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to go back with Laura. Mm. I realized I never should have left her. So, so that lasted... 16 years that we were married. Uh, take out 23, would it? 16, no, 16, I was... 23? Just, yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, no, it was 1967. Yes, to 73, yeah. 83. 83, right, yeah. Was, yeah, right. Uh, terrible with that. And um, then, then you do... Divorced, the friendship maintained itself. Then, with your present wife, right. how long were you married the first time before you remarried? Uh. We had been together for about, um, I think it was three years, and then married actually for one of those years, mm. and then the, that that unraveled, uh, and we spent a year apart, mm. and then and then came back together again. Mm. It was, it was interesting with Laura, the, the sense was we, we started to make the same mistakes mm. after we got divorced that we were making in the marriage. And we, real, we just sat down one night and just both said to each other, if we keep on doing this, we're going to lose this mm. as well as the marriage. And we both realized how much the family connection and the friendship meant yeah. to us. Mm. And we just didn't want to make the same mistake twice. No. So you, you, what was the name of the wife now? Lini. Lini. L-E-N-Y. L-E-N-Y. L-E-E-N-Y. L-E-E-N-Y. Yeah. Right. And 
seems like from your description earlier, you have formed a very good relationship and have maintained them with Laura and obviously with Lini, and, and they connect with each other. Very much so. Uh, Lini always had a hard time with my friendship with Laura and yes, some of that business. Yeah, and when she and I were divorced that year apart, people would come up to her and say, well, has he gone back to Laura? Mm -hmm. And she, she saw in that year that Laura and I really are friends and family to each other because Laura and I going back together again was never a question or an issue. Yeah. And then the mistrust just dropped out of it for her. And she'd always liked Laura. The two of them are wonderful friends, mm -hmm. which delights me because basically mm -hmm. she's the closest member yeah. of family that I have in the world. And the thought that, that my wife and my sister, as it were, like each other. Yeah is so so warm and wonderful for me, you know? Mm -hmm. We actually can have family reunions and, and people don't argue. We do things Tell together. Parents, yeah. My father is, is, is dead. My father's gone. My mother's alive, but um, she prefers to spend most of her time by herself and not really see very many people. Mm -hmm. right. a, lot of, right. a lot of life just went out of her when my father died. Yeah. And no children, do you? No children, yeah. but that's yeah. becoming an issue now. Yeah. yeah it, it, I, I've run out of excuses. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. And at the moment you're making some m move, finally, up to the Catskills. Yes. What uh, inspired that? What's it, New York City is one of the most inhabitable places that I've ever encountered on the on on the planet. You know, on the best day when you fly in, you see this brown haze hanging over Manhattan, and I get sick for two days when I come back. Yeah. My body has to literally switch over to breathing poison. Mm. You're living in this incredibly compressed space in Manhattan mm. with the noise pollution and the and the people mm. pressure. We realized that we wanted to get out and basically to save our lives, you yeah. know, uh, yeah, that's right, that's right. and, and yeah. just live. And it also seems as if there'll be, uh, I would much rather have people coming up so that I can do whatever we're going to call it, whether it's yeah. psychotherapy or meditation work, in a surrounding that's more conducive to yeah. everything being done at once, not just a compressed two-hour session right. once a week and a class once a week. Mm. People can come up and spend time, and we can work in... A more relaxed and and, mm -hmm. and spaced out, uh, right. you know, fashion. Right. I don't mean spaced out, spaced no, out, no, but no, you know, right, right. space right. out the work. You yes, know, right. just have it over a longer period of time. I think, uh, on the biographical level too, I've covered yeah. the question. Is there anything again that you, that needs to be included? Anyway. I, you know, I, I can't think of anything right no, now. I think we've got coverage. Yeah. yeah. Anything? Really? Good. All right. Thank you. Very well, thank Excellent. you, Christopher. Thank